0: There's a joke that was very popular during the founding of the State of Israel. It says that there was a kibbutz that had shomrim, they had guards, who would patrol the perimeter of the kibbutz night by night. Now they had no weapons, so Shmuel was given a broom. And he was told to walk around and point it at anything that he had a concern with and make it look like a gun and everything will be okay. Just look threatening, they told him. So one night he's walking around with his broom and he hears some rustling in the bushes and he says, whoever it is, come out or I'll shoot. And gradually, Yossi comes out of the bushes and he looks at him, Shmuel does, and says, Yossi, you're nuts, I could have killed you. And Yossi says, not with that, I'm a tank. And this one is a true story. When Golda Meir, then Prime Minister of the State of Israel, met with the American president, Richard Nixon, Nixon told her, who was mired in the Vietnam War, that he would trade three American generals for the Israeli General Moshe Dayan. Okay, she said, it's a deal. I'll take General Motors, General Electric, and General Dynamics. As you know, Israel has had many wars in its short life, in fact, five wars in the first 50 years, almost as if on schedule, a war nearly every 10 years. Prompted by calls for its destruction, yes, you heard right. Israel is the only country in the world that has countries vowing to destroy it. Israel has been called to defend herself and her citizens repeatedly, 1956, 1968, 1973, 1981, and of course, in 1948 at its founding. To understand that moment of 1948 requires you to understand its history. The Second World War had just concluded. The British, who had been given a mandate to administer Palestine after the First World War from the Ottomans, were under an agreement to step away and hand it over to the United Nations. The United Nations had declared a partition plan dividing the territory of Palestine between Jews and Arabs. The Jews accepted it. The Arabs refused it. In November 1947, by a vote of 33 for and 13 against, the United Nations gave legal legitimacy to the founding of a Jewish state. But even then, the state did not exist. At this time, Those people who had managed to survive the Shoah, the Holocaust, were living in displaced persons' camps throughout Europe. And while the thought of staying in Europe was inconceivable, the chance to arrive in North America was wishful but not simple, but the hope to land in Israel was being blocked by the British, who had a policy of commandeering transport boats, raiding immigration organizations, and then putting them into detention centers. All of this after six years of six million Jews being murdered. And on the other side were the surrounding Arab countries to this little country to be who would vow to war if it declared its statehood with little by way of an army, with even less by way of weapons. There were prominent voices in the Zionist leadership who were telling anyone who would listen, not to declare statehood. What's the difference, they said? If you don't declare it, just make a country. After all, the United Nations made us legal anyway. And by not declaring, they argued, you might just avoid a devastating war with 12 different Arab countries, some of which have been supplied and trained by the British Empire. You know, it's interesting to note that of the 195 countries in the world today, only two were deliberately created, as in created by choice. Yes, two. Nearly every other country are either areas that were tribal lands, the Franks created France, the Sverds created Sweden, the Goths created Germany, or they were colonial enterprises which made countries like Canada, Congo, Niger, Uganda, South Africa, or were legal separations and borders as empires broke up. But there are two countries in the world which were made by self-determined fia. In other words, they called themselves into existence because they were living there. The first is the United States of America, and the second is the state of Israel. But while the United States was created as a liberal democratic state, Israel was created as a liberal democratic Jewish state. In the months following the United Nations Declaration, governments were telling the Zionists that they would not recognize the state. The United, Nations, the United States told the Zionists that they would not sell them bullets, arms, or planes. And entire secret operations were put into place to clandestinely purchase American war supplies and American warplanes. with those planes then being flown over North America to Israel. Jewish agents were posing as scrap dealers, buying up old war material in Europe. And even if they were able to get it past the British, there was no assurance they would actually hold up in battle. Fundraisers were held in salons and synagogues and homes throughout North America, raising millions of dollars so that the Zionists could buy what they needed. It was a moment when little was assured, and there was so much to lose which was also true over the debate whether to declare statehood. It carried on, not surprisingly, for five months. It was David Ben-Gurion who knew what most people knew in their hearts, that it was now or possibly never. If the Jews didn't have the courage, he thought, to declare a state, why would anyone care if we survived or not? And for the Jewish people, our survival in 1948 wasn't an assured thing either. After the war, the Jewish world was shattered, and we desperately needed something to believe in, too. In the span of six weeks, through nearly six different versions, the Declaration of Israel's Independence was announced on May the 14th, 1948, 75 years ago this coming week. And while the Declaration was the work of a committee who wanted a document that legally would tell the world that the Jews had fulfilled all the mandates and requirements of what the United Nations had asked for it. But Ben-Gurion understood that this could not be a legal document in a simple sense. He knew that it needed to be something that would be recited by school children. And therefore, it needed to tell a story. And there were questions everywhere. What to call the country? Historically, some wanted to call it Eretz Israel, the biblical name for the land of Israel. Others suggested either Zion or Judea. But Ben-Gurion, however, demanded that it be called the state of Israel so that it should be seen by the world as the homeland of the children of Israel. The religious parties wanted the name of God mentioned in the Declaration. The socialists and communists who were avowed atheists refused that so Ben-Gurion poetically includes the biblical expression, Tzor Yisrael, the rock of the people of Israel. The, the religious parties believed that they had won. The atheists believed that they had won. So everyone won. On the 15th of May, 1948, the British, who at this point will hold up in a small area of the port of Haifa, would be leaving on the last boat, removing any remnant of British rule. And the Zionists knew that May the 14th was the day that it had to be done, or it might be too late. On the night of the 13th, David Ben-Gurion told the committee that he was going to make the declaration. And he worked through the night to complete the text. It was done so last minute that they didn't even have time the typeset imprinted. In that now famous picture of Ben Gurion standing in front of two Israeli flags, he's reading from a series of handwritten notes. The declaration ceremony was held in a small two story building on Rothschild Boulevard in Tel Aviv because they believed that it would be less visible to Egyptian bombing. And as the crowd gathered, David Ben Gurion tapped the gavel and everyone in the room. Began to sing the Hatikva, despite the fact that there was an orchestra there to play it at the end of the meeting. And on that afternoon, but hours before Shabbat, he announced the following: Eretz Yisrael, makom bo kama amayudi, that Eretz Yisrael, the land of Israel, was the birthplace of the Jewish people. Here, their spiritual, religious, and political destiny was shaped. Here, they first attained their statehood, created cultural values of national and universal significance, and gave to the world the eternal book of books. After being forcibly exiled from the Lamb, the people kept faith through their dispersion and never ceased to pray and hope for their return and for the restoration of their political freedom. And from that moment, everything changed. From that moment, there were not only Jews in the world, but there were Jews and Israelis. From that moment on, we were no longer homeless, but homebound, no longer defenseless, no longer subjects but rulers. On a practical level, street signs were changed almost immediately throughout the country because when the British ruled, there were three languages on the street signs. English on top, Arabic in the middle, Hebrew on the bottom. Almost immediately, the street signs were changed, with Hebrew on top, Arabic in the middle, English on the bottom, just like it is today in Israel. The first law they put into action was the rescinding of the hated British immigration quota that limited Jewish immigration and led hundreds of thousands of Holocaust survivors stranded in all places throughout Europe to come. In a short time, it would also be home to a nearly half-million Jewish refugees from Arab lands who were forced to leave their homes in the face of violence and political persecution. And then everyone again stood, and the Atikvah was sung, this time in tandem with the Jerusalem Philharmonic Orchestra. And Ben-Gurion put a kippah in his head, and he said, Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam, Thanking God for sustaining, delivering, and bringing us to this moment. And with that, the sun was setting. The people in the hall spilled out into the streets, into crowds of joyous, jubilant singing and dancing Israelis, celebrating the unthinkable, becoming thinkable, a Jewish homeland. But Ben-Gurion did not go into the streets to dance. He didn't even go into the special celebratory prayer service on that Shabbat at Tel Aviv's great synagogue. He went immediately to his office, and he received word that the Czech prime minister, Tomas Mazurik, agreed to sell Israel weapons. To this day, Tel Aviv's Kikar Mazurik, Mazurik Square, is named after him. Ben-Gurion then sat at his desk and wrote these words. In his journal, will Tel Aviv be bombed tonight, question mark. The people are jubilant, but I mourn. Shuddering at the danger that lay ahead, he was filled with dread, the cost a war would claim from this small country. His fear would be proven tragically correct. Israel's independence war would claim more lives than any other in its history. But it did survive. I know how easy it is to be drawn into the vicissitudinal drama of headlines and news and politics thought royal daily out from Israel. But let it not obscure for a moment the miracle that it is and that it will become. Because sometimes impossible can take a little while longer. And a few weeks ago in Israel, I participated in the many protests that were being held against the proposed judicial changes the largest ones being held in Tel Aviv, with over 100,000 people attending weekly on Saturday evenings. And on that first evening, on that first Saturday night, I passed by a building that had projected onto it the scrolling words of the Israeli Declaration of Independence. And in the background, you could hear the recording of David Ben-Gurion reading it as it played for the crowd. And my eyes drew a tear, because he did not live long enough to see what it had become, but he was also wise enough to understand of the continual and difficult burden that Jews would carry to claim our right to be Am Hofshibiseu, a free people in our own land. And then I whispered to myself, "SShehekhu." the Osman How fortunate we are to live in this moment, in this day, in this time. Chag sameach, Shabbat shalom.